I'd love to have you take your Bibles, turn with me to uh, the book of Isaiah. Book of Isaiah chapters 3 and 4 is where we will be today, a substantive and weighty text. But to help us get there, I'd like you to reflect with me on uh, a couple of, of books here that will help us to where we're going and I think frame our, our comments here today. Uh, several years ago, 2016, Paul David Tripp, some of you are familiar with, wrote this cool book on parenting, creatively titled Parenting, <laughs> subtitled 14 Gospel Principles That Can Radically Change Your Family. It's a really good book, and as I browse through all the uh, classrooms today and said hi to all your, your, your darling children out there, uh, it makes me again say, if you want to read this book, you should. Now, I found it interesting, 2016, he wrote a book called Parenting. I'm sure there's no correlation, but two years later, he wrote a book called Suffering. <laughs> Gospel Hope When Life Doesn't Make Sense. Isn't that great? I'm sure it was just a providential sequence, but he managed to write this, a really good book on suffering, in all seriousness. If you um, need to wrestle through those, he was wrestling with some things in his own life. But about this book on parenting, um, I, I want to I want to read just a couple of portions here uh, that'll give you a feel for the book, and I think lead us straight into where we're going today as well. Fourteen gospel principles. Now, each of the fourteen chapters, uh, he has given a one-word title and then a a sentence that tells you what the what the chapter is about. And I want to read a few of these because it, it tells us about good parenting. And by a certain amount of very easy extrapolation, it tells us something of the heart of God. So some of his chapters and phrases would be these. Chapter 3, under the heading Law. He says, your children need God's law, but you cannot ask the law to do what only grace can accomplish. Isn't that good? His chapter on identity If you are not resting as a parent in your identity in Christ, you will look for identity in your children. We know how well that turns out. Uh, Process, chapter 6, process. You must be committed as a parent to a long-view parenting because change is a process, not an event. Chapter 7, lost. As a parent, you're not dealing just with bad behavior but a condition that causes bad behavior. In other words, those little darlings are all little sinners too, aren't they? Yeah, they really are. Where'd they get it? I know. Us. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Lost. Okay, chapter 9. Foolishness. Foolishness. The foolishness inside your children is more dangerous to them than the temptation outside of them. Only God's grace has the power to rescue fools. Isn't that good? Just a couple more. Chapter 11, false gods. You are parenting a worshiper. So it's important to remember that what rules your child's heart will control his behavior. And then finally, this is chapter 12 for him, uh, under the heading uh, control. He says the goal of parenting is not the control of behavior, but rather heart and life change. I commend that book to you, but I I spring from those kinds of, I think, solid biblical gospel-driven principles 
to the awareness that in our text today, chapter 3, this section was introduced in chapter 1 and verse 2, where God says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. And we are reading here God's dealing with a nation, his chosen people, his chosen nation, and how he deals with them in a place of their rebellion. Interesting. Well, more comments, I think, on on the parenting issue perhaps later. We'll see how things go here. But but Isaiah 3 and 4 um, are a, a sobering and encouraging text in that, order, in that order. All right? I want to pray that God will help us in his word today, and then we will roll up our sleeves and get after it here. But pray with me, please. Our Father, how good it is to open together the word of God, your inerrant, inspired word, and we eagerly and readily joyfully place ourselves before you as those who would learn from you. Uh, We really don't know much. However much we know, it isn't much. And we are always learning or should be. Our Father, you're the one who is holy and righteous and good, who knows all, can do all. You're the one truly good. And it it is right that we would open the word of God and come to you. I think today of of, uh, Martin Luther, who once said, my conscience is held captive to the word of God. And I would pray that for us, that we too would be held captive to the word of God. So do that, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So on your sermon notes, you see several elements of review that we introduced uh, three weeks ago, I believe, as we introduced the book. I'll remind you of that third bullet point from last week. Uh, we noted, it affects our text today, that the literal historical grammatical approach to Bible interpretation means we read the Bible according to the normal and customary uses of language. That means that we uh, readily, uh, eagerly recognize figures of speech and types of literary genre. That's super important. We'll comment along that about that on the way here, but it affects our reading of the text today. Now, the next paragraph, today's text, just to give you a, a sense. In this opening Portion chapters 1 through really chapter 5 or so, uh, the section of chapters 2 to 4 seem to, f- to, to form a single sermon. That, that's important for us to know because chapter 2 begins with a section on hope, and then it runs into this business of judgment through the rest of chapter 2 that we looked at last week. That continues all the way through chapter 3 and into chapter 4, verse 1. Then there's another section on hope. So it's as though this judgment-oriented sermon is bracketed, sandwiched by words of hope, okay? So today, as we step into chapter 3, it's like we're jumping right into the middle of a sermon that's pretty sobering, and you'll quickly feel that. So uh, more comments on that in a minute on that section. But I want to read the text at this point, and I'm going to read a large section, all of chapter 3 and into chapter 4, verse 1. As together we hear God's word, I think it will be good for us uh, as we talk about it uh, today. So God's word, Isaiah 3, we read this. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water, the mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, 
the captain of 50 and the man of rank, the counselor and the skillful magician and the expert in charms. And I will make boys their princes and infants shall rule over them. And the people will oppress one another, everyone his fellow and everyone his neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder and the despised to the honorable. For a man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, You have a cloak, you shall be our leader, and this this heap of ruins shall be under your rule. In that day he will speak out, saying, I will not be a leader. In my house there is neither bread nor cloak. You shall not make me leader of the people. For Jerusalem has stumbled And Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked. It shall be ill with him, for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. My people, infants are their oppressors, and women rule over them. Oh, my people, your guides mislead you. They have swallowed up the course of your paths. The Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people? By grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord of hosts. The Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet, therefore the Lord will strike you with a scab, the heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. In that day, the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands, the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets, the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes, the amulets, the signet rings and the nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks and the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans and the veils. That's a big shopping trip. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. Instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, baldness. And instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth. And branding, instead of beauty, your men shall fall by the sword. Your mighty men in battle. Her gates shall lament and mourn. Empty, she shall sit on the ground. And seven women shall take hold of one man in that day, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. Oh, my goodness. How would you like to live there? This is a staggering, awful time. Painful, even to read. Now, I want you to look with me at the part on your study notes called today's text that is in bold. It's good for us to remember even in a section that highlights God's judgment of a nation. It's good to remember this from one writer who has studied the text substantially. He says, it is not a cruel God who brought, who brings these things upon us. It is not a rejecting God 
who sends us to the fire. Rather, it is a loving God who sees no other way to bring us to the place where he can truly live in us. So lest you read chapter 3 and think, clearly he is done with them. No, you'd be wrong. He is not done with them. And as we'll see in a bit, he's going to speak of restoration. But what he is doing is saying this, when you rebel against me, this goes poorly. And right now, God says to his people, here's what it's going to look like. Here's what rebellion looks like as a nation. And I, and I hasten to point out that this is a statement of judgment on a nation, not on an individual. Okay? So as you read this, don't be thinking, well, man, I've messed up too. God is going to do this to me. Okay, hold on. If you're a child of God, Hebrews 12, which we'll comment on later, Hebrews 12 teaches about God's disciplining hand. Indeed, that's written to us. God's judgment on a sinful nation is not how God will deal with you as his child. Okay, so just keep that, please. I want to give you an example of that. I put the the, the sentence here, the words of judgment here aimed at a nation, not an individual, um, because even at this time, there were still faithful people, faithful to God in the nation. The nation as a whole, not so much. Individuals, yes. This is true in other places of the Old Testament, other places in the Bible. And I'll, I'll quickly remind you of one so you'll get an idea of what I'm, what I'm speaking of. You remember back in the days of Elijah, uh, the people on the thrones were Ahab and Jezebel. They were not Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts. Not a good time. Well, Elijah then is a prophet for God. And in 1 Kings 18, you remember he has that showdown with the, with the, the prophets of Baal. And man, God wins, hands down. And Isaiah, though, is a human, and that whole event, and Jezebel's words coming for you, gonna take your head off, uh, which prompts him to run. Isaiah, uh, yeah, <laughs> Elijah is spent. Spiritually, emotionally, physically done. And this is the moment when he, he finds a little shrub, a shrub bush and he lies down underneath it and he says, oh God, take my life. I am just done. I am done. And God cares for him in that season. He doesn't come and smack him. In that season of, of weakness, God ministers to him. He says, Elijah, eat, sleep. He wakes him up. And then Elijah goes again and he finds himself in this cave, First Kings 19. And he's there to meet with God. There's a wind and all these other moments. And then in that still small voice, as you read the text, uh, God has this conversation with, with Elijah. And one of the things he says to him is, Elijah, I know you feel very alone right now. But listen, God says, I have 7,000 others who have not bowed the knee to Baal. 7,000 others. You're not alone. You feel alone. You look around and say, there's nobody else who's a good guy. Nobody else who's following the God of the Bible. It's just me. God says, no, there's 7,000. I know every one of them. So even as, even in that dark time of Ahab and Jezebel wasn't, wasn't great. Uh, Elijah, Elijah was one of many. So in this case, as God is going to deal with this nation, and it says it in verse one, it says it in verse eight, Jerusalem and Judah, they're the topic here. God is going to deal with them in judgment. There are still righteous people living through it. All right? So 
I, I think that's important. More on that in just a moment here as well. But what I want to do is is look with you at the specifics. You have your sermon notes there. I've, I've made a list uh, that I, I think summarize what it looks like for a nation that is under God's judgment. Okay? And I just want you to just to look, see where my, my little phrases came from, and verify indeed that the, thus saith the Lord, this is God's dealing with Jerusalem and Judah, specifically at that point in history, but I think there are commonalities to God's judgment of any nation. So verse 1, economic collapse. That's one. The supply of bread and water, they'll speak of the, uh, the, the, the basics of sustenance for people, uh, is, it's being broken. I'll take away support and supply. So economic collapse. Verses 2 and 3, the removal of key leaders. And there's a whole list here, mighty man, soldier, judge, prophet, diviner, and elder, and, and so on, taking away key people. Now, historically, when one nation or one nation sent their army to take over another nation, often they would do this. Instead of wiping out everything, they would take away the key leaders. Example of this, of course, years later when Babylon uh, finally conquered the south, uh, we've spoken about this, you remember that they took key leaders, smart people. They took Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Or you're familiar with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, along with Daniel. That's why they were taken to, to, to Babylon. So they were, they were taking the smartest people. And you can imagine the havoc that would happen here if someone came in and took, okay, the mayor, the city council. All right, depending on where you're at. I digress. They took, I wasn't done. The, the mayor and city council, all the first responders, anyone who owns a business, runs a store, anybody of means, anybody who leads anything significant, puts them on a bus or several and takes them away. How would this go for you? I mean, the rest of us. Well, it's a problem because you have a problem. You call 911 and nobody answers. Or if they do answer, they can't send anybody. They're all gone. Or if you need a gallon of milk, you can go down and the place has already been sacked. No pun intended. There's no milk, basically. What are you going to do? So, so taking away the key people, that was a way one army would cripple another without just wiping everybody out. Removal of key leaders, which leads to verse 4, I will make boys their princes and infants shall rule over them. That is, people who are not qualified to be in charge somehow are in charge. Who's ever heard of such a thing? Stop it. It's not a political statement. It's right out of history. Not talking about anybody uh, who's ever been in any place of leadership. But this is a statement of God's judgment. And it goes further, verses uh, 6 and 7, where they're looking around for somebody to be in charge. And they say, hey, that guy's got a coat. That'll do it. You're in charge. And the guy with the coat says, whoa, not my coat. Don't make me in charge of the sinking boat called the Titanic. It already hit an iceberg. We're going down. I am not in charge here. Okay, you be in charge. You be in charge. No, 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 no. I'm not a leader. Imagine. That's what's going on. So so an absence an absence of leaders of character, absence of leaders of experience, it's a sign of God's judgment. Verse 5, the people will oppress one another. Everyone is fellow. Everyone is neighbor. The youth, insolent, rude to the elder and the despised to the honorable. I, I put it as a de- an epidemic of disrespect and antagonism. Wow. It's a sign of God's judgment where people blow up uh, 
various forms of communication with disrespect, and it gets, it keeps going. Verses 8 through 11. Open rebellion against God and shameless sin. Jerusalem has stumbled. Judah has fallen. Their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. The look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. In other words, they are proud of things that should make them ashamed. Who's heard of that ever? They glory in their shame. Wow. They brought evil on themselves. Woe to them, the prophet says. So open rebellion against God. Down to verse 12 then, following that big section. My people, infants are their oppressors. In other words, it doesn't take much of an army to run over you guys. And women rule over them. I don't take that so much as a a, a shame on women as in... Where where are all the men? Where are the men of character? Where are the men of integrity? Oh, I'm looking for them, and I don't find them. It's an army season. Many of them have died, or they've been taken away, and there are no men of character among us. And it's a sign of God's judgment to have the absence of men of character and men who love the God of the Bible. It's a sign of judgment. Wow. Verses 13 to 15, leaders who take advantage of those led. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It's you who've devoured the vineyard, the analogy that we'll see in chapter 5. The spoil of the poor is in your house. You, you took from the poor. You built, your, you built your wealth on the backs of poor people. Imagine. What do you mean by crushing my people, grinding the face of the poor, says the Lord of hosts. Leaders who take advantage. And then I put... 16, down through chapter 4, verse 1, under one heading, that is, prosperity enough to flaunt. So he takes this group of ladies, sounds like they're right out of Hollywood, who have spent their lives in, in, in excess and enough prosperity uh, to, 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 to just flaunt openly. And he says it's going to be a different day around here. The list here is not saying those things are bad, not necessarily bad to have headbands and anklets and these things. But you know what? This verse 6, verse 18, no, sorry, I can't. Yeah, there it is. Verses 18, 19, 20, 20. You would you like to make that little paragraph your memory verse for the week? Wow. It's, it's, it's listing things that people might find uh, as part of their beauty treatments. And he says, it's all going away. Instead of your nice finery, sackcloth. That would be like gunny sacks. You're going to smell all right, but it won't be perfume. Verse 24, you're used to taking care of yourself and smelling nice. Now it's no more, no more Chanel number five. Instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, oh boy, baldness. Now this is talking to ladies who like to do their hair. It's not talking to others of us. <laughs> you can see the context. Read in the law, Leviticus says, if you're bald, you're clean. That's in the Bible, I promise. Here it's talking about judgment. Just telling you, look it up if you like. No, it's in Leviticus. Uh, your men shall fall by the sword, your mighty men in battle. So, so he's saying these days are over. These are signs of the judgment of God on a nation. Wow. Now, none of us know perfectly the working of God how far down a nation is before the lights start going out. You're aware historically that as Isaiah writes this, Assyria is the world power 
And Assyria, Assyria comes knocking on the door, as we will see later in the days of Hezekiah the king. And God intervenes at that point and keeps Judah and, and Jerusalem alive for the moment, then later to be taken over by Babylon. So the time of judgment in terms of them being taken away was not yet. But none of us really knows in looking at a nation or evidences of judgment where that process is. Okay? So just be aware of all of that. Now, on that other bullet point, I want to say a word or two. This is on the next page here for you. Interestingly, when these things are, when these areas are strong in a nation, many feel no need for God. Others view their presence as an evidence of God's blessing. I want to talk about that. Sometimes in the Old Testament, or often in the Old Testament, when God dealt with the nation of Israel, he, he, he gave evidence of his blessing by what he gave and what he withheld. But I mentioned earlier the caution here about applying that to an individual. Okay? Uh, first, when you think about a nation, there are times when all these things are, are, are where they belong. Is that always evidence of blessing? Is wealth and comfort always evidence of God's blessing? The answer is no. Just as the opposite is not true either, that the absence of wealth and maybe illness, that those are not necessarily evidences of God withdrawing his kindness. So if you find yourself in a season where finances are tight or absent and there's illness or whatever else, you can certainly say, Lord, what's going on? But to assume by those things that that's a withdrawing of God's hand in some kind of judgment, I would be very cautious about that. One thing I would do, if I were you, would be to read Paul Tripp's other book, the one I referenced on suffering. Really a good treatment of the difficulties of life and how you walk with God through them. Um, I've got a whole pile of little flags there to remind me of key sections. Really a good book. Uh, I would I would certainly do that, but I would be very cautious about assuming. Uh, that's like Job. You know the story of Job. Job's lousy comforters came along and said, Job, you lost all your stuff. You're a mess. Um, clearly, God's mad at you. And that wasn't the case at all. And God ends up rebuking those poor comforters, poor counselors, saying, you got it wrong. Job's one of the good guys. And I had other purposes for his life. So cautious of this, cautious of this, of course, uh, as we think about evidences of God's blessing. This is speaking of God's hand of judgment on a nation. And to look at this, of course, causes all of us to pray for ours. Wouldn't you say? As we should to pray for ours, because I think some of these evidences of judgment on Judah and Jerusalem sound really like a newspaper. Now, consequences of national rebellion, yes, indeed painful. You come to chapter 4, verses 2 to 6, and you see this this big shift again, even as at the beginning of chapter 2, when we went from hope to a sermon on judgment, now it reverses, and he closes this season, this particular statement of judgment with these words of blessing. And I want to read four, two through six then, God's word. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who's been recorded for life in Jerusalem When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment, by a spirit of burning, 
Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and the rain. Wow, see, I want to live there. I want to live under the hand of God's protection. I don't want to live in chapter 3 if I were to pick my residence. Now, I put this under the heading, and despite judgment, God looks toward restoration. Indeed, he does. Coming right out of that uh, big statement in chapter 2 and chapter 3, he now begins to breathe hope once again for his people. And I, before I comment on some specifics in the text, my first bullet point here, God's judgment of the sinful nation is not intended to ruin it. That's not his purpose. If he wanted to, he could have. He could have just turned the lights off once and for all. But he doesn't. His intent is for its good, ultimately, for redemption. Even in judgment, I'm saying God looks toward future hope. Now, some specifics, then, as you look at 4, 2 through 6. The, 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 the verse begins with the phrase, in that day. And, of course, you, as a reader of God's word, will ask yourself, well, what day is that? Monday, Tuesday, okay, no, what, what are we talking about here? Because we've already seen in Isaiah, there are a number of statements about another day, that day. I look back into chapter 2, verse 11 and verse 17 are similar. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And we say quickly, well, when? In verse 12, the Lord of hosts has a day, and it's a day of judgment. Uh, we see again in uh, verse 20, in that day, mankind will rise up. And we're talking about some days that God has on his mind. Chapter 3, verse six, or 18, in that day, and then again to today's text, and I'm sure others, in that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. So there is a specific time that God is looking ahead to. Now, combine this with the second phrase, and I have a couple things to say about the branch of the Lord. This is clearly looking ahead. Uh, the, the branch of the Lord is a, is a messianic term. I'll show you that in a, minute. in a minute. It refers to Messiah Jesus, who is yet to come. But I'm, I'm wanting to say, Isaiah was writing, remember the year, approximately? Page one. You can cheat. Okay, 740, 750 or so. So in one fell swoop, the prophet looks ahead 750 years. You know how long that is? Well, I know, 750 years. Longer than my life or yours, longer than this country's been in existence. It's a while. So the prophet, guided by the Spirit of God, looks ahead to the Messianic time. So at at least to that part, the coming of Jesus, and I would suggest maybe even beyond that. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. So that day, we mentioned last week, there's a lot in prophetic material on the term, the day of the Lord. Read Zechariah, you see this, New Testament writers picked that up, the day of the Lord, Second Peter 3, First uh, and Second Thessalonians, the day, the day of the Lord, thief in the night. So there's a day that the prophets and New Testament writers, Jesus, kept pointing to. There's a day, the day. So God, God knows human history. Oh, please know this. It isn't out of control. God is not rushing around in heaven with the angels, frantic. We're about to lose it. No, he's not. 
Heaven, I would suggest, is a calm and orderly place because the one who sits on the throne holds it firmly in his hands. So as we run around and say, oh no, we're about to lose it, be aware heaven is not worried. No, God on the throne holds things in his hands. He knows. He is guiding human history to the ends toward which he has ordained all things to take place. He will. He will see it through. In that day, the branch of the Lord. I want to talk about that phrase, the branch of the Lord. Um, it's, a, it's an interesting little phrase. It uses the analogy kind of like if you cut down a tree. We'll see this in a moment. If you cut down a tree and there's a bare stump left, and then at some point later, a branch pops up. Okay, if you've ever hiked in the, in the Olympic National Park, you see this nursery log, a tree that's been cut down, and out of it is growing another tree. Well, I think that's the analogy that's used here. I want to read a couple of these among many. So I, I've given you this on your study notes for your use as well. And again, you can use a concordance or some other study tool to find other references to the term the branch, but here you go. Chapter 11 of Isaiah There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So that's David's line. Jesse, of course, being King David's father. So it's talking about in the line of King David, as we'll see more of that in a minute. So there's Isaiah. I want to to move over to Jeremiah for a moment, uh, another prophet who uses that similar analogy of the branch. And here are just two references to this. In Jeremiah 23, starting at verse 5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely, and this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Can you Can you possibly find a better reference for Jesus than that? The Lord is our righteousness. Yes, indeed, he is mine. The Lord is our righteousness. I have no righteousness. I must be covered in his righteousness. Every child of God, forgiven of sin, covered by the righteousness of Christ. Here, looking ahead to that, there will be this branch coming up from, from, from David, the line of David. Indeed, his name will be called the Lord is our righteousness. Wonderful, wonderful. And then chapter 33 Similarly, following right on the heels in Jeremiah of the New Covenant teaching in chapter 31, and here, this amazing uh, section. Again, I'd love to just keep on reading as I will be forced to stop. But chapter 33, verse 14, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I'll cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, that is the branch. The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And right away, you recognize that as the Davidic covenant from Second Samuel 7. Right? Yes, we've kept that familiar, I think, in our church family. One of our Christmas programs... Um, is, is deals with that. Uh, we have, uh, as you perhaps know, if you're newer, you may not. Right now we're working our second time through seven Christmas programs that hit the high points of the story of redemption. And we're in number six. Okay? 
So that's the story. One of those, of course, and we preach about that. We do a play about that, that, that high point. A couple of years ago, it was, it was David, David's royal line, Jesus, son of David, 2 Samuel 7. But going back to Isaiah, to Isaiah chapter 4 then, this statement, in that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. Isaiah is looking ahead hundreds of years. I mentioned in the next little bullet point, this business of prophetic foreshortening. Remember us talking about that a couple of times? It might be a fuzzy term. I'm sorry, but you really need to know it because in the prophets, often there is a, a, a look ahead to several different points that are separated by time, and they're all kind of crunched together. Okay? An example of this would be Isaiah 61, which Jesus quotes or reads from a scroll in, as recorded in Luke 4. And in Isaiah 1, that's the phrase, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He sent me to, you know, to do all these things, you know, bind up the, uh, the, the, the wounded and open the eyes of the blind and so on. And in Isaiah 61, Jesus, as it's recorded in, in Luke 4, he's reading the prophet's scroll and he reads starting at verse 1 and he gets to the middle of verse 2 and stops. What to us is the middle of the verse. Folds up the scroll, rolls up the scroll, gives it back to the attendant and says, Luke 4, um, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing because the next line is, and the day of vengeance of our God, and it wasn't that day. See, the first part was was Jesus' first coming, the suffering Savior. The second part, the day of vengeance of our God. So those are crunched together in Isaiah 61, which is why Jesus' followers were saying, is it today you're going to throw out the lousy Romans, take over the place? They read Isaiah 61 and said, he's going to do all this cool stuff and it's going to be a day of vengeance. It's going to be great. And Jesus said, okay, up to here, yes, stop. And then the church age and another day where the day of vengeance of our God indeed will be poured out. That's a future time. Interesting stuff. Wow. Prophetic foreshortening crunches it together. So I think Isaiah 4 is doing that. Um the time of judgment, certainly as they headed off to Babylon, came to a close and people came back, Ezra and Nehemiah, we read about all of that. But there's there's another day here when the branch of the Lord will be glorified. Verses 3 and 4 are a look at, ahead to a time when all the judgment is done. The Lord will have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion, cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem. It's talking about judgment is now behind us. And then verses 5 and 6, uh, it, it's a throwback, if you will, to, to the to God's protection during the Exodus, the pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night, uh, the glory of God very evident, and the prophet Isaiah is looking ahead to say, "There's going to come a day, there's coming a day, there's coming a day, when the glory of the Lord will be that evident over His people." I take Mount Zion to be Mount Zion, Jerusalem. I think that's exactly what's going to happen. Others would say, oh, I know, but I think it's figurative for, and unless I see a reason to think it's figurative, I take it as kind of that. I'm not that smart to just make up other things. I just take it that way. I think there's coming a day when God's going to do exactly that and that there's going to be a, a time and a place when the, when, when the glory of the Lord again rests on that physical place, Mount Zion. I think it'll be there. Now, for our purposes today, that isn't the main element I look here at your study notes, and I mention a couple things that will help us. Clearly, God's judgment of Judah and Jerusalem doesn't have the last word. God's purpose is to cleanse and correct, not to destroy. And I'm so glad for that. Even a nation, we're talking a nation here, even a nation in rebellion against him, his chosen people, he is not done with them. 
And I've mentioned to you before, I do not believe God is done with the nation of Israel. And I'm so grateful that even as God deals with us, he never looks at us. Oh, listen to this. He never says, you know what? You're too much work. You're too much work. You keep messing it up. Haven't I told you to knock that off how many times? Goodness, look at you. God never looks at us as his children and says, I'm through with you. You should know that because probably sometimes you are a lot of work. God never looks at you and shakes his head and says, next. No, Paul makes that very, very clear. Numerous places. Romans 8, the love of God. Nothing can separate us from his love. Philippians 1, 6. The one who began a good work in you will continue it until the day of Jesus Christ. Oh, yes, he will. He will continue it. He will not give up on you. You're a child of his. Now, I I ask you to think about a couple things here, responding to God's word, worship and obedience. We've been talking about God's judgment of a sinful nation. And then just a bit of context there. Several weeks ago, a couple months, certainly, uh, we were in Hebrews 12. It talks about God's disciplining hand for his children. And again, it's talking about his children, not those who are, are not his children, but God's purpose in our life to correct and restore us. God deals with us, we saw in Hebrews 12, as a good, good father who doesn't just punish to cause pain. A good parent who says in the midst of a a mess, no, I won't just sit here and change the channel while your life goes down the toilet. I will engage at this moment. It's very tempting to ignore this. Very tempting to just let your snotty attitude leave the room and go to your room and just stop it. It's harder to get up turn the TV off and walk to that room and say, we should talk. It's very hard. But even as good parents do that, remember this book, Paul David Tripp, Parenting. You'll not forget the title. Even so, God deals with us. He doesn't just say you're too much work and leave. No, he he engages with us by the Spirit of God. I ask you here, is there a place in your life that you're aware of that God's at work in his discipline? And I suspect that for most of us, there's some place constantly where God is steering or guiding or correcting or rebuking. This is his constant work, and, and, and it ought to be. Otherwise, it would be like God saying, you know, you're pretty good right now, frankly. I mean, look at you. You've got everything together. Oh, you do? Oh, no, God sees. He knows. Constantly dealing with and correcting and, you know, uh-uh, don't do that. Correcting us and guiding us and shaping our hearts. Those gospel principles that Paul David Tripp talks about for parenting are how God deals with us. Where is that place where God is at work in your life, in his discipline? Do you know? And would to God that our hearts would say, yes, Lord, do that. Do that deep work in me in that place. And don't stop. And then the last little element there, it just takes us to the cross of Jesus. Judgment was poured out on Christ as he bore our sins on the cross. If you're a child of God, oh, listen, God, when you sin, know that judgment for that sin was poured out on Jesus on the cross. God may correct you and help you along. That doesn't mean he's punishing you for your sin. Okay, that's Hebrews 12. Pick up those sermons if you need to. But the gospel is so clear as you look at the scriptures. God's mercy and loving us. I hope you're trusting Christ as your Savior today. I would love to pray for us. We've covered a lot of ground today. If you'd stand with me, let's close our time together in prayer.
Our Father, how good you are to us, how patient, how kind. We are a lot of work. Sometimes for the people around us, pretty messy. And sometimes just us before you. And how patient you are. Lord, thank you for that. Thank you that you don't look down from heaven and look at our messes and shake your head and say, next. Oh, no, we are kept and redeemed for all eternity because of Jesus. Thank you. Father, in those areas where you're dealing with us, I pray you'd give us a a heart sensitive to the Spirit of God and very moldable by him, by you. Help us to hear you, listen to you. Time in your word. Spirit of God. Father, I pray as well for anyone who does not know Christ today who may be listening to my words, that you would draw that person in a way that they absolutely can't deny. Draw them to yourself. Humble, proud hearts. Show us our sin and show us even more clearly the work of a Redeemer. Thank you for the morning. Encourage us this week. Go go before us. Point us to Jesus. We pray this in his great name. Amen.